Hello, everyone. While we're getting ourselves gathered up, uh, I'm Rita McGrath. You probably knew that. Uh, this is being recorded, so please don't say anything or do anything that you do not want to report it <laughs> in a public setting. Um, and my guest uh, this week is Michael Bungay-Stanier. Is that how you pronounce it? That's pretty um, good, actually. Although, yeah? you know, my, my company... The, the, my corporate name is is the Banging Spaniel Corporation because I once got a letter addressed to Michael Banging Spaniel, which I just thought was like a, both a highlight, a high point, and a low point in terms of people maiming my name. And I was like, you know what? That's so good. I'm going to run with it. That's fabulous. Yeah, exactly. So so after, when you hit that point, Banging Spaniel, basically any any attempt at my name is going to be pretty good. <laughs> I, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who is, has a Danish name and uh, yes. it's spelled with this like agglomeration of consonants and it turns out it's pronounced Flüberg, <laughs> which I can pronounce because I'm, I'm German by background, but um, he looked at me, he said, that was very good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Maybe that's a secret superpower I have. Maybe that's the secret power you have. At last, we've uncovered it. Our work here is done, Finally. everybody. We've found Rita's superpower. That's right. You get this strategy stuff. But is it's it, really is it... about name pronunciation. <laughs> but is it thrilling? Is it important? Is it daunting? That's right. That's right. Anyway, so just to introduce you to uh, our listeners, those that don't know you, perhaps. Um, so MBS, as we all like to call him, Banging Spaniel. I'll remember that now. He's uh, <laughs> a, a very famous author. His books have sold more than a million copies. He is one of the world's leading authorities on coaching. He's got a bunch of different books of whom I have a couple here to show and tell, The Advice Trap, which I love for um, its core thesis, which is we love to give advice, like we love to give advice. And he's called this The Advice Monster. And this this book, The Advice Trap, is how you how you get over being an advice monster. And um, I'm hoping I can get you to expand on that a little bit. And then this book is really about finding purpose in life, making decisions, and moving towards uh, concrete goals. And this is the most recent one, right? That's right. Yep. That's just uh, three or four months how, ago. How to begin. Yeah. I'm, so, almost, I'm uh, almost recovered from the book launch because, as you know, book launches are this tortuous thing. They go on way too long and you're not sure what is going on and if anything's making a difference. So... If you, well, if everybody you who's watching, if you look at authors and we look tired, it means we've had a book come out in the last three to six months. <laughs> I was just I was just on a call earlier today about my next book, and I'm, it's like this period of anticipation mixed with dread, right? <laughs> so I know this is kind of jumping the the interview, but have you have you written it? Do, do you know what it's about? Can you share any gossip about it? Gossip. Um, well, I can tell you it's probably building on discovery-driven uh, growth. Nice. Uh, it's building on some of the ideas of how do we think strategically in situations that are massively uncertain, and how do we how do we make sense out of it? How do we mm. bring ourselves to be courageous in the face of you know? both option a and option b are horrible <laughs> how do right. i choose between the two so um uh, you know it's, i think i think it's going to be around those themes because that's what people are asking me for you know how do i right. think about this right so that's fantastic and you know the connection to the stuff i write about in part mm -hmm. is um in in times of uncertainty and ambiguity the hunger to rush in with advice and decision making is stronger because, you know, there's just one part of your brain going, stop the pain, <laughs> stop the ambiguity. Right. Right. But the capacity to sit with ambiguity and sit with curiosity is such a powerful leadership act. Um, and it feels like you're going to bring some really great thinking about that to this. 
Thank you. That's very kind. Well, so let's just for people that don't know you, um, and I don't know that that's possible, but for people that don't know you, so are that's very flattering, but so inaccurate. But okay, we'll go with that delusion we'll that everybody that. knows who I am. <laughs> so you started off as the hippie in your class of Rhodes Scholars, um, and you decided not to take the path of what would have been pretty well greased skids to, you know, white male privilege, global domination. And you decided to do something else. So tell me a little bit about that choice and what that's led you to. Yeah. I mean, I had two, I had a few really lucky breaks. The first was um, actually becoming a Rhodes Scholar. And that was a lucky break for two reasons, really. One, well, three. One is you, you being a Rhodes Scholar is a fancy thing and it immediately kind of you have a little invisible garland that you wear for the rest of your life. So that's cool. But really it helped because first of all, I was studying law at my university in Australia and just because of momentum, I probably would have become a lawyer and an unhappy lawyer because I was literally being, I left law school being sued by one of my professors for defamation. So it really wasn't going well. But so being a road hey, scholar took how me to do you, How do you do, was that like a deliberate strategy? I mean, how does that happen? <laughs> uh, you know, it, Somebody once said to me, Michael, you have a gift for throwing yourself on landmines. And I was like, <laughs> we were protesting against a, 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 a particular professor who was teaching a point of law and just using an inappropriate way of teaching it, using a, a, actually a story of a woman getting raped, which wasn't necessary to describe the point of law. So I, me and some others made a fuss about it. And the response was to sue me for defamation around it. Anyway, it all went away in the end. But all of which to say, I stopped being a lawyer, which was wonderful. Met my wife uh, in, at Oxford, which was also wonderful. And then when you're a Rhodes Scholar, you're, you're, you're courted to, to be hired by fancy companies like McKinsey and Bain and BCG, all these kind of big consultants. And I went for a I went for a kind of information session with them and I just went, I think I'd die if I it was in McKinsey. I'm sure they're great. I know lots of people from McKinsey. They're all brilliant and clever, but I would not flourish there. Mm -hmm. So I stumbled into a job in an innovation company. And this was in the mid nineties, slightly before innovation became a really kind of well-trod theme. Uh, you know, I tried to explain to people what I did in an innovation agency and everybody was confused and I was slightly confused. Um, but what we would do is we would help organizations generate new products or new services based on capacity and brand equity and the like. And what was mostly brilliant about this job was um, they were very much, the, the two founders were very much about don't do business as usual. So I showed up and I had long hair and I had earrings and I made my own clothes and they're like, you are weird and we like it. Don't we'll change some things but don't change too much you know we like we like the quirkiness um so they gave me permission to um kind of not be a well-behaved cog in the capitalist machine early on they're like be a bit different be a bit weird we quite like that um and that was good until i suddenly realized that i wasn't getting a whole lot of fulfillment from you know trying to invent stuff crust pizza for pizza hut or new whiskeys or new soups or kind of miscellaneous stuff. And I'm like, I love the process, but the outcome I just don't care enough about. And that took me into the world of change management and how organizations actually work, which kind of took me into the world of actually how do people thrive in organizations? Because, you know, most of us work for a, an organization, big or small. They are powerful forces of change and powerful forces shaping society. And 
there's this tension in organizations, which is we need to make our money and we need to make profit and we need to survive and we need to be efficient and we need to get stuff done. And that requires a certain structure and strategy and process and discipline. And then you've got messy human beings <laughs> who are like, just keep screwing it all up. And, you know, and what often happens is the, the messy glory brilliance of the human being gets tamped down to, to, to fit with the organization needs. And I'm like, I want people to thrive within the context of organizations. So that kind of takes me to a lot of the stuff that I, I uh, the, that's the, the, the soil out of which a lot of my work grows from, which is like, how do you help um, our organizations thrive and our people thrive as well? Mm. And so did you go out on your own at that point or were you with another kind of organization? Yeah, well, I... I I, I moved to this uh, uh, OD, Organizational Change Consultancy, and I was in London for a while, and then they were setting up a, a, a new shop in um, the US. So I was like, I'll be part of that. So I went over with a small group, and we set up a company, and that was great because we had a big uh, US client, AstraZeneca. And when Astra and Zeneca was becoming AstraZeneca, um, so we were part of the merger stuff with them. And we're like, this is great. And at the moment, we're flying back and forth from England to Philadelphia to do this. So we arrived and we set up an office in Boston and about four days after we finally <laughs> set everything up, they fired us. So we're like, oh no, it's a disaster. And AstraZeneca it, yeah, we're just like, we don't need your, your help anymore as a consultancy. And the whole move had been kind of betting that this would be an ongoing relationship and it would be our cash cow that would fund everything else getting going. And so you know, I, I can see this more clearly now, but I, I see now that we showed up and we, we didn't have a, we didn't really have a unique selling point as a consultancy. We didn't really have um, IP or something that we really stood for. We didn't know anybody. We all had British accents or Australian accents or a bit weird. So we had two years of just struggling to get by because it had, we had a whole lot of infrastructure and costs um, but we needed to be a scrappy startup and we didn't have connect. We didn't have, we didn't have anything really. So after three years of that, I, I left there. I've got a job up in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Eric, I'd never been to Canada before. So I had the, I, I somehow lined up a, a job and uh, my flight out of Boston was on nine 11. So exactly. So, also, so all sorts of stuff is going on there. The least important of all of that was me losing my job <laughs> you know, my consultancy is like you know the world has turned upside down we're not gonna we're not hiring <laughs> anymore so um after getting a, a short job as a kind of bridging a bridging job um uh, attempting to help an organization bring a, an external branding project internally to shift the culture so i spent nine months trying and failing utterly to make any difference there. Cause again, I had no, I showed up and I had no influence. I had little control. Um, I finally got fired from that job <laughs> and almost exactly to the day uh, 20 years ago, cause um, Box of Crayons started July 4th, 2002. I, I went out on my own mm -hmm. and, and reading my, my, my initial business model was find somebody with a pulse and a wallet. And see if you can do something because I'm like, I don't, you know, I, I, I was new in Toronto. I didn't know anybody. I had a, a, a an assorted miscellany of skills. Um, but over, 
over time, I got clear on actually the thing that I cared about and the thing that I thought had some resonance in the marketplace, which is how do you help organizations actually help their managers and leaders be more coach-like? Because I thought it was a really important leadership skill and change technology. I thought it was being done really badly. And that's what Box of Crayons turned into, which is focused around helping organizations shift from advice-driven to curiosity-led. I love that. And I talk about that a lot in the context of, uh, you know, this model we have of leadership where the leader has the answers and sort of metaphorically up on a horse, swinging a sword, saying this way, people, you know, and maybe that works if you're escaping saber-toothed tigers or something, but certainly in modern organizations that that's just so often leads to just disastrous results. Um, And as you were saying, it appeals to that part of our brain that's just craving certainty, right? Just craving, give me the answer, give me the solution. Um, And yet this whole idea of leader as coach, which um, Hermani Ibarra has written about as well, I think is a very powerful metaphor. It's true. And, you know, uh, 20 years ago, thereabouts, Daniel Goleman wrote an article for HBR on a leadership that gets results. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, there are six different leadership styles and they're all appropriate at certain times. Um, typical leaders use two, maybe three. Great leaders know how to use all six. And, um, you know, when he wrote about it, he's like, coaching is a, a critical leadership skill. It contributes to culture, but it also contributes to the bottom line. There's kind of compelling evidence around that. And it was, it's the least used, in part because people are like, what is coaching? And partly it's like, who has time for coaching? So that helped me go, this is, these are the problems I need to solve around that. Mm-hmm. But I also think, Rita, that we've just, um, in the 20 years that have passed since Goldman wrote that, we've just got even clearer that the, the moments of needing an expert to stand up and go this way and I am right and I have the answer are, are increasingly infrequent. <laughs> there, there's a place for advice. There's a place for certainty. But, you know, as I say, if you can stay curious just a little bit longer, and rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly, that typically is going to serve you well. And so your big breakout book was The Coaching Habit. Was. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, you know, because that obviously must have crystallized in your brain as, as the core thing that you felt you wanted to be known for. And then the, the advice trap kind of builds on that, as I understand. It does, it. yeah. You know, it was... Um, it was very satisfying, <laughs> and here's why. Um, so I had um, I had now got five, six, ten years experience trying to bring coaching skills to busy managers and busy leaders, and I'm like, okay, I think I know how to unweird coaching, so it doesn't feel like some woo-woo, touchy-feely HR initiative, but it feels like a practical everyday leadership skill for busy people who are like, look. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to have more impact. I'm trying to make my team thrive. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm at capacity. I, I, my, I realize I don't know as much as I thought I might know. It seems to the more senior you get, if you're lucky, the more you realize you, you're, you don't know that much after all. Um, and so I'd, 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 I was like, I've got something important to teach here, something that could be really helpful. So I went to the publisher, the New York publisher, who I published another book with. I went, here's my book. And they're like, amazing go and write it so i wrote it and they came back and they went we hate it but we like you go 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 write it again i'm like okay so i went away and wrote it again and they came back and they're like we hate it but go write it again and i'm like oh god so i went away and wrote it again and i went we hate it. And this i like i literally wrote six or seven versions of this book 
And and in doing so, I got more and more confused as to what I was trying to do because I was now trying to please the publisher. I was just trying to get them to say yes. And, you know, I had a dark night of the soul or two. And then I finally went back to them and went, look, I really know what this book is about. It's like seven essential questions mm-hmm. that make coaching unweird for people and, and a way of actually making it an everyday way of showing up. Mm-hmm. So this is the offer. Take it or leave it. And I was like pretty sure they're going to take it because, you know, my last book had sold 100,000 copies, which is pretty good. And I was really clear on the vision for this. And they went, no, we don't want it. And I was like, oh, I was gutted, Rita. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Because I really think this is a good book. So I sat, you know, I sat with it for a bit. And then I went, you know what, I'm going to just self-publish it. But my commitment to it was to self-publish it as a professional. Uh, I'm going to hire a designer. I'm going to hire an editor and a, and a copy editor. And I'm going to really put out something that is, you can't tell the difference between a regular published book and whatever this was. Mm-hmm. And I happened to find some really good people and fall into some really great support around that, uh, put the book out and it just took off immediately. So it sold 200,000 copies in the first year and honestly, you know, Rita, that if if you write a book, you're like, if I can if I can sell twenty thousand copies in a year, that is amazing and rare. <laughs> you know, I, I reckon it's a miracle to sell ten thousand copies of a book. So this book, which has gone on and it's now sold, I don't know, one point two million copies or something, um, self published. Is it is it is. I wish I knew how to repeat the success. <laughs> I wish I knew. But it's, yeah, it's really taken off. I think because people go, this makes coaching feel like I could do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's a profession. It feels like, you know, actually, Peter, I'll say one last thing and then I'll stop monologuing. Um, my very first book, um, I, I sent it to Peter Block, mm-hmm. who, who has long been a hero of mine in terms of what he writes about and how he thinks about responsibility and showing up and, and, and he wrote a blurb for it, which was still remains one of my all-time professional highs. It's like, Peter Block said something nice about my book. And he said something that I didn't even realize I believed in, but it kind of crystallized something for me, which is like, coaching isn't a profession. It's a way of being with each other. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I mean by unweirding coaching, which is strip away the kind of baggage around it mm-hmm. and realize that this is a way of actually connecting with people so that you help people have more impact in the work that they do and you help bring out the very best of who they can be. Mm-hmm. And I found that people do rise to high expectations. You know, if you, if you give a message that, you know, you got this, like, I, I think you can do this, that they're much more like, I mean, you actually increase the odds of success, I think, in those situations. Yeah, so, I, I, um, I, I, yeah I agree. Yeah, so picking up on the seven questions, Um, I I really like these and I think it's worth spending a couple of minutes on them. And then I want to talk about your your most recent book and the kind of transitions that you made that you talk about in that book and and your wife and what you found on her dorm room. (laughs) But we'll hold that for just a second. All right. So the kickstart question, what's on your mind? Yeah. So the power of this reader is it, it, it comes from understanding why people resist being more coach like in organizations. You have to tackle that. Yeah, I mean, there's no use banging on about how wonderful coaching is if there's a whole bunch of people going, you don't even know why I, want, why I don't even believe you. You've got to get to the heart of why people resist to make change happen. 
So I talked to a bunch of people and I said, look, there's a number of reasons why people resist coaching. Takes too long. I don't have time for this. <laughs> um, and I'm like, so that's why if you can coach, my belief, if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. And then people go, it still takes too long. <laughs> Even if I could coach in 10 minutes or less, I'm, I'm, I'm crammed. And I was like, yeah, but you need to think of coaching not as additive to what you do, but transformative of what you do. Because nobody's got space to add coaching as an added responsibility. But if you go same people, same conversations, same meetings, but in a coach-like way, then stuff becomes possible. And then they go, um, look, I don't want to be a coach. I've met coaches. They're all kind of weird, touchy-feely Californians lighting sage and you know, wearing pastels. I don't want that. And I'm like, I don't want you to be a coach either. I want you to be you and your team and your organization being more coach-like. And then people go, well, well, what's in it for me? And I'm like, you get to work less hard and have more impact if you're more coach-like. That's the power of it. And the power of that kickstart question, what's on your mind, is, is twofold. One is it accelerates you into an interesting conversation. It actually says, let's get to it. <laughs> let's get going on the thing that you're worried about or you're anxious about or you're nervous about or you're thrilled about or you're obsessed about. Let's go there. And it's part of how you can have a powerful conversation in less than 10 minutes is you don't faff about, you get into it. And, you know, I don't know if you've had many experiences of being in one to, you know, the kind of regular one-to-one -one meeting that you have once a week or once a month or something with your manager, how terrible most of them are. Because there's kind of this like reporting out of stuff. So there's a kind of this like mutual covering our asses by having this conversation at, at, at its worst. And I think you can reinvent that one-to-one -one just by using this question, which is like, you've got a ton of stuff on your plate. I trust you on a bunch of it. You can send me the data I need on email so I can scan it. So let's get into something that matters. What's on your mind? And now you're saying, let's talk about what's important. But you're also saying to them, you tell me what matters to you. So you're, this is an act of empowerment. You're saying, I trust you to know what we should be talking about. Let's get into that. It's great. We just had a, a team offsite um, this this past week, and what really struck me, among many things, was just how important that question was. Like, just to meet people where they were and and right. what, what was on their minds and what were they thinking about. That was really yeah. valuable. Value. And, so and the number thing to say, two Rita, is to, to all the people who who worry that like if I ask questions, I lose control. Mm. Well, you do lose control, but not always, not forever. You, know, you still get to come in and if it's not working, you're allowed to guide and give advice and do stuff. It's not just, I can only ask questions and know nothing else. Mm -hmm. But that act of giving up a little control is what empowerment is. Mm -hmm. Empowerment is saying, you, you take the power of this or mm -hmm. give up some of this power because mm -hmm. we both get to win if that happens. Well, yeah, and stuff starts to happen without your having to make it happen. I mean, that's oh, the magic of it, right? <laughs> get out of the way and let your people get on with it. <laughs> right? I think it's brilliant. So yeah. question two, the awe question, and what else? Yeah. So, you know, I, when I'm speaking, I'm always like, this is the best coaching question in the world. If you take one question away, take this question because it's fantastic. And there was this moment when I was writing the book where I suddenly realized that the acronym for and what else is awe. So it's literally an awesome question. I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> I, can, I can run with that. Um, here's the insight that's behind the question, Rita. Their first answer is never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. 
and and you know this better than I do, we waste vast amounts of time and, and resource and humanity working really hard on trying to solve the wrong problems because we don't have the discipline to actually go, let's not get seduced into the first answer. Let's stay curious a bit longer and figure out what's really going on here. And, and what else has this twofold effect? One is it says to the other person, keep going. And what's amazing is they don't even really hear you asking and what else. They just hear you opening the space for them to continue to figure stuff out. But the real secret of and what else is that it's a way of containing and managing and taming your advice monster. Because what happens when you ask a question and somebody gives an answer, your advice monster pops out and goes, that's it. You've got the answer. Now it's your turn to add value to this conversation. Go for it. And I'm like, just slow down. You'll have a chance to add your own stuff to it, but just stay curious a bit longer. And and what else can really help with that? Mm, love that. I love that. Yeah, I, mean, I remember once as a young consultant, you know, when I was going into an organization. You're still a young consultant, Rita, <laughs> and I won't hear anybody say anything else. <laughs> You're welcome on this broadcast forever. Um, <laughs> Um, so I was told by the person who was bringing me in that, oh, the problem in this company is communication. So I dutifully read up everything there was ever written in the Harvard Business Review on communication, yeah. bought books on it, bought training, training manuals show up. And it turns out um, what they hadn't explained to me was that there's three guys who are in consideration to become the CEO of this company. And uh-huh. They are in deep, deep competition with each other. Everybody yeah. hates everybody. They communicated perfectly effectively. That was not the right. problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, it wasn't lack of communication. You're all too transparent about what the communication is. Yeah, it was fast, but it's a great lesson for me. You know, what the client tells you is the issue almost never is. Almost never Um, is. Then we have the focus question. What's the real challenge here for you? Yeah, you know, and this kind of really connects to a lot of the work that I know that you're most well known for, which is this idea of what is strategy? What are we actually putting our time and attention to? And, you know, I there's a really powerful way of combining the second and the third question together. And this is what it sounds like. This is a script that you can literally take away and use with the people that you manage and and work with the folks who are listening. You go, all right, so I hear what's on your mind. Great. What's the real challenge here for you? And we'll unpack that question in a minute, but just let me show you how this works. And then they'll give you an answer and it's not their only answer. It might not be their best answer. So you go, great. What else? What else is a challenge here? And they'll give you another answer. And then you go, great, what else? What else is a challenge here? Now they're like sweating slightly because they're like, you're really making me think about this. And they'll give you an answer. And then you'll lean in and you'll go, okay, so stuff going on, I get that. What's the real challenge here for you? And it's transformative. Mm -hmm. And that question, of all the seven questions, Rita, this is the one where the, the construct of it kind of is most important. Because you could just ask, what's the challenge here? And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're likely to get a bit of a, a repeat what, of what you've already heard. When you go, what's the real challenge here? You're saying there's more than one thing going on here. So what's the real challenge? You're, mm-hmm. you're inviting them to wrestle with and prioritize and stack rank and kind of go, I think this is the real challenge here. And, and now you're already winning because now they're thinking, now they're figuring stuff out. New neural pathways are being formed. Mm. But then when you go, but what's the real challenge here for you? Then something quite magical happens because now the spotlight shifts from the problem to the person who's wrestling with the problem. 
And now you're giving people an opportunity for growth and for learning and for self-development and also solving the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And if I can, I'll give you a quick, wonderful story about this at, at play. So one of the organizations we do a lot of work with is Microsoft, you know, where the training that's behind the coaching habit book is a key part of their transformation from a know-it-all company to a, a, a learn-it-all company, that famous Sachin Adela phrase. And um, I had the great pleasure and privilege of coaching um, the man who was the head of sales for Microsoft. So, you know, reported directly to Satya, had an organization of 200,000 people. And, um, and, I, and I coached him live on stage in front of 5,000 people at their sales conference. Very, very exciting, slightly sweaty moment. Because I'm like, don't screw this up, Michael. And uh, JP is this very charming wonderful, lovely Frenchman, and also an old school Microsoft guy. You know, he, he, he really grew up under Balmer and Steve Balmer had a whole reputation around what Microsoft was under his watch, um, which kind of Sachin Adela is quite different from, but he was, but, but JP was really seen as this kind of uh, old school guy, but doing his best to embrace this new culture and this new way of working. And I literally, just in 10 minutes, I pretty much just asked him those two questions. Yeah, but what's the real challenge here for you, JP? And it was magical because it went from, uh, I've got to get my salespeople doing a certain thing to I've got to learn how to step away and trust my salespeople to do something. And it became, it moved from this high-level strategic classic executive thing, which is like I'm talking about them and us and we the whole time, to him going, my wrestle is this and with my direct reports and how I role model a different form of leadership. And what was brilliant about it was it was transformative for how sales happened in Microsoft, but it was transformative for him as a, as a leader as well. And I'm talking about it because he talks about this publicly. So he's, he's kind of blessed the story being out in the world. And that's why that combination in particular What's the real challenge here for you and what else and what else? So what's the real challenge here for you can be so powerful. I could totally see that. And then you have the foundation question. What do you want? Yeah. You know, I use this question gets used less often than the other six, but it can be really powerful when the conversation's got a bit lost. And I don't know about you, Rita, but I've been in conversations where I'm like, I'm kind of confused as to what's going on and I can't get to the heart of it. And I'm, 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 I'm starting to work too hard to try and make this work. And I've just found that the question, what do you, so what do you want, is a very grounding question for people. And if they can get really clear on what they want, actually that pretty much unlocks all the next things that need to happen. Mm. And I found it a good question for myself when I'm struggling to give somebody feedback, you know, I'm, I, I'm quite conflict averse. It's like, I'd rather not talk about the messy hard thing if that's possible. Maybe you could just read my mind and you just understand <laughs> what I want. It's yet to work, but you know, I'm not going to give up easily. Um, and if I'm, if I'm in a moment where I'm like, I, I know I need to, I know I'm resisting having that conversation with that person. What I'll ask myself is, Michael, what do you want? What's the request you want to make? And when I discover what that is, I then discover what I need to tell that person and how I need to tell that person. So it can be a question that unlocks stuff for you as well as unlocks stuff for other people. Yeah. What I find too is people often substitute um, 
symbols of what they want for what they actually want. So a story I often tell is I was talking to a woman who was in our women in leadership class. And, and you know, we had this conversation about what's your vision and what's your aspiration. She's, oh, you know, I want to be a exec senior vice president level two, you know, category G. And I'm like, okay, but like that's a very specific and very limiting thing to yeah. aspire to, right? Yeah. So what, what, why do you want that, right? <laughs> so you exactly. it, and it turns out what she wanted was to be able to have creative control, to be able to have degree of independence, to have resources to invest in young people. I mean, there's this whole yeah. laundry list of things that she thought that position could give her. And it turns out in the course of our conversations, many ways you could get that result. I mean, being an SVP might be one, but there's many others. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just seeing um, Bogdan actually asking a question. Do you use WISE for coaching to solution? And I've got an opinion about that. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I, th there's a very famous consulting tool called the five WISE, you know, the ladder of inference, which is like, so what do you want to do? This, why? Well, for this reason, well, why? Oh, well, for this reason, it's a way of getting to root causes in terms of what's really going on. And that can work really well in a, a specific conversation around strategy, I think. But I find that in everyday conversation, when you ask somebody why, it's a, it's a fraught word to start a question with for a couple of reasons. One is it's actually quite hard to get the tone right mm -hmm. because why do you want that can sound quite a lot like why the hell do you want that? So it can come <laughs> across as a little kind of aggressive or assertive or judgy. Um, and then the second reason I try and avoid why is often if I'm asking a why question, it can be sometimes because I'm trying to find out more information so mm -hmm. I can give you my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, is this helping me or is it helping them in terms of asking that question? So my bias is to almost always try and ask a what question mm -hmm. um, because it's a little less loaded, a little less weighted how questions are really good once you know what the challenge is, because then you can move into action around it. But what questions are the, the most neutral way of asking a question that keeps the conversation most open? Mm -hmm. So with the, the story you're telling reader, I might be going, so, okay, so what do you want? I want to be a SVP level two category G. Great. What else do you want? Mm -hmm. What else do you want? Mm -hmm. What do you really want? What's the real challenge here for you around that? Mm -hmm. All right. So now what do you want? And there's a way that you can get to that same insight, which is like, I just want control. I want creative mm -hmm. control around that mm -hmm. um, in a way that why do you want that? Might go, well, you know, I want it because I want it. What's, why do you care? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, the, that's the risk with it. Absolutely. So we've got Fernando. How do you make space for clients to tell you what they really want, not what they want to want or what they expect others for them to want, even if embarrassing, seeing the truth is liberating? Yeah, <laughs> that is a, a very powerful question. And um, it kind of circles around this piece around give people time to play with it yourself. And then the power of you as an experienced coach or consultant is you can kind of push back against that. Like mm -hmm. I hear you saying SVP level two, category G. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what's behind that. <laughs> mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. feels like that could be an inherited goal rather mm -hmm. than a deep goal for you. Mm -hmm. So what's most important for you around that goal? If you had that, what would it give you that you don't mm -hmm. already have? Mm -hmm. And there's a way that you can push them and challenge them and provoke them. You know, when I think as a coaching relationship, I'm often trying to show up with fierce love. Love meaning I'm here to I'm here for you. I'm here to make you get you what you want to help you thrive, 
but fierce meaning I'm not going to be nicey nicey about it. I'm going to push you and challenge you and provoke you and prod you because you don't have many people who are willing to do that. And I want you to know my fierceness is in service of you. Well, it's one of the big issues with people not providing developmental feedback to others because they feel it's uncomfortable. And you right. need that, right? You need to know where you're not showing and up. And it is uncomfortable. Yeah. And it can be so powerful. <laughs> and the more you do it, the more comfortable it gets. It just, now, I want, I want to make sure we leave time for the new book because yes. um, the new book starts right now. Here we go. How to begin. Beautiful. And it's really about your journey from box of crayons, which was a very successful uh, journey to this new, this new way of thinking about what your goals are in life. Yeah. And you open it up with a really interesting example of, um, you know, <laughs> sort of name the date of your death actuarially and then work yes. backward and think about what are the projects you really want to do between now and then. And I thought that was a very interesting way to open a book. <laughs> you know, um, there's a writer called Kevin Kelly He's in certain circles, he's well known. You know, he he found he was a first editor of Wired magazine. Wired. He's written a wonderful book around the I think it's called the Technorium or something. It's like the twelve major trends that are shaping the world. It's very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, it's here somewhere and, in my library. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrific book. And um, and I came across this idea of you can figure out your own death date from him, and I just went, that's pretty interesting. And, and he also said, you've got basically a big project takes about five years from go to woe. So you can start figuring out, like, I've got about 25 years left, maybe if I'm lucky. That's like four, maybe five big projects. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. But the starting point for this reader was me going, trying to write a book on, on how do you shift your behavior? <laughs> because, you know, culture change is about shifting an organization, but also shifting individual behavior within that organization, because your culture is, that's what we do. And we're not really thinking about what we do. And so behavior change, and it's like, behavior change is really hard. <laughs> it's like re- people wrestle with it all the time. We're, you know, our systems are set up for homeostasis, which is like protect what's already happening. And we're set up for that as well, which is like we're pattern machines, keep doing the stuff that doesn't suck. Um, and I was like, what breaks people into a new way of being? And I came across, I, I wrote this phrase and I, and I liked it when I wrote it, which is like, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. And I'm like, so how do you help people work on the hard things? How do you help people find that and name it for them and give them the courage to pursue that? So then to my surprise, I found myself writing a book about goals. Because I'm like, I wasn't thinking that's what this book was about. But this idea of saying, all right, rather than smart goals, which the more I thought about, the less enamored I got. I'm like, I can't even remember what all the letters stand for. Specific, measurable, actionable. Well, see, that look on your face is the look everybody gets on their face, which is like, I'm pretty sure what these are, but I'm not entirely sure. And I've actually seen the list, which is like each one of those letters has three to five plausible words that could fit there. So you're kind of like, I kind of think what they are. I know what they are. But the... The real challenge with smart goals for me, reader, is it's all about tying it down and neatening it up and making it measurable. And if you don't have the right goal, you're polishing a turd. <laughs> it doesn't matter how smart they are if you're not working on the right thing. So this idea of a worthy goal is how do you find something that is thrilling, lights you up, meaningful for you? How do you find something that's important, serves the bigger game, serves the bigger goal, gives more to the world than it takes? 
And how do you find something that is daunting? So you keep learning and growing and finding your edge. And as you know, reader, in organizations, you've got a twin strand of DNA. It's the strategy, the stuff that we do, and it's the culture, the stuff that the who we are. And in thrilling and important, you've got the 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 culture, the the me of it, the best of me, and and in important, you've got the strategy, what what serves us best, and then in daunting, you've got the engine to keep growth happening, so you don't plateau, so you don't stagnate. So that's what comes at the heart of this book, which is like, how do you find the worthy goals for you and the people with whom you work? So you can unlock your greatness and you can have more impact in the world. Mm-hmm. Love that. So tell me about the sticker on your now wife's uh, dorm yeah. room. Door. Yeah, you know, uh, like I say, getting to Oxford saved me from being a lawyer. Hooray. <laughs> and I got to meet Marcella and that happened really quickly. Like within six weeks of arriving at Oxford, we were living together. And part of her unwitting seduction technique was basically on, on her little dorm door. She had a sticker, which is life is not a dress rehearsal. I'm like, I love that. It's like, you've got to squeeze, you've got to squeeze this life because you get one. I mean, I'm an, I'm an atheist. So for me, I'm like, I've got this one dot of light and then there's just darkness stretching on in infinity. So I'm like, make the most of this bright moment in the light because you won't get this back again. Um, and that is part of, uh, you know, you can, you can see that thread coming through in a book like How to Begin, which is like, it's not a dress rehearsal. So you've got, you got X number of years left. You can figure it out if you want. Um, so how do you make the most of those years so that you can come to a moment where you're like, I don't have any regrets about how this life played out. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's something that is actually in the zeitgeist at the moment, right? And, you know, the pandemic, the disruption of routines, the recognition that some things we've taken for granted, you know, yeah. global world order, uh, you know, the state of uh, racial re- relations being what they were, the fact that we have these supply chains where I can order a dongle from Vietnam and it arrives in my house in Connecticut in two weeks, you know, the, all these assumptions just kind of being thrown up in the air. And I think a lot of people are now really hungry for the answer to that question. So uh, the book is really structured in terms of, of finding the sense of, of meaning and, and purpose. And um, and what I like is also that you've got, I don't know if I, if I can see, it. I love this, um, this little Gantt chart, what, what do you call it? The pie chart? Yeah, yeah. A Venn ben diagram, of, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, which is, uh, you know, a little too obligated, a little too self-centered, a little too comfortable. Ah, worthy goal, <laughs> which yeah. I thought was, was a really nice way of framing it. Thank you. So, Box of Crayons, I met you, I think, the first time you had me on some program that you were running. That's right. This was sort of been around the time of my two books ago, I think, or maybe even That's three. Right. Um, and uh, that was really your life's passion for a long time. You built it into a pretty cool organization with a whole bunch of people. And, That's right. and then you made the decision to leave. So maybe play that out because that's hard, right? That's a hard, it's a hard thing to grapple yeah. with. I'm, out, I'm, clear, I'm sure it wasn't something you decided on overnight, like on a whim. I mean, it must've been something you gave a lot of thought to. Yeah. You know, um, so the story here starts at actually the restaurant I went and had dinner at last night. I was actually in the very seat I sat in last night. Um, but eight years ago or seven years ago, I was sitting in this restaurant. It's a pizza restaurant in Toronto called Dafina on Roncesvalles. And it's great. It's just a really great place. And um, my wife and I were sitting at the bar because we like to sit at the bar. And the woman behind the bar was 
talking to us and she was smart and she was charming. And it turns out she was doing a PhD in literature. Now I have a master's degree in literature. My wife has a PhD in literature. So we're like, oh my God, let's talk books. So we got into books. And then she said, look, you know, I've, I'm a, I'm a teaching TA, I'm a teaching assistant. I, I do this job behind the bar. And I've also got a part-time job at an independent book publisher here in Toronto. You know, she's a hustler making, trying to make stuff work. And then she said, but they've just fired me from the book publisher because they just won the Governor General's Award, the biggest literary award in Canada, and they don't have enough money to print all the extra books they need. So we have to fire you. <laughs> I was like, oh, why don't you come and help me out with this? This is about the time the coaching habit came out. I need some help getting the book out into the world. So Shannon showed up and Shannon is just brilliant. And she went from a few hours a week helping with marketing to full-time marketing to starting to do sales. And at a certain point, me and my coach went, you know, Shannon would be a really good CEO. <laughs> I know this is her first ever job. She's just got that brain, you know, that way of able to see patterns and have the courage to think strategically and make brave choices and poke a finger in the kind of the soft spots. She has all of that. And so at a certain point, um, I went, two things are happening. First of all, I'm discovering that I'm not a very good CEO. I'm really, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I get by by a certain amount of self-deprecating charm and good luck, but honestly, it doesn't play to my strengths. And also I don't get to do what the stuff that does play to my strengths, which is to, to think and to write and to try and make complicated ideas practical and accessible for people. So um, my coach and I decided that we should, see if Shannon wants to be the CEO. And she was like, well, maybe yeah, I'm up for that. <laughs> I'm a little daunted by it. And I'm like, me too. Um, and then I did a bit of asking around from other founders. And I just discovered that almost every founder transition is a disaster because founders are people like me. We're like, we're erratic, we're divas. We're good at some stuff. We terrible at some stuff. We, we mostly want to stop all, stop being involved in everything except for the things that we still want to maintain control over, which will then come in and sabotage the whole thing. So we set up a process to really think about the transition. And it, it was a two-year process. We spent, we hired, we hired a coach who was our transition coach, not my coach, not her coach, but our coach. And we spent a, a year leading up to the moment she became CEO and then a year leading following it, mostly reader to stop me screwing it up, mm. you know, to stop me coming back and um, meddling mm -hmm. because you're right. There's a, there's a degree of me giving up something that was very fundamental to who I was and someone had spent 18 years shaping and crafting and inevitably putting my DNA into all of that. And, and even though I'm not, you know, when I'm not really the face of the company, I kind of still am the face of the company. So it took a bunch of work and um, it needed a coach. It needed a two-year commitment. It needed a bunch of structures where we were really clear what I could and could not get involved in. So we ended up agreeing that the only two decisions that I had to make were, can I fire Shannon? And can I sell the company? Those are the two decisions that are mine. All the other decisions are hers, including the right to have the company fail. You know, it's her, if, if the company fails, because companies fail all the time, um, uh, that's, that's 
that's her right. She's the CEO. This is her company. So we had to get to that place where we're like, you're not minding Michael's company. You're running your company. And that took a certain amount of work on both of our sides to understand what that looked like and what that required. I would imagine there were maybe one or two moments of backsliding. <laughs> uh, there, there were. Um, there were, but, but nothing, nothing too tragic. <laughs> nothing too tragic. Uh, in part because I'm quite forward-focused myself, so mm -hmm. I'm not too sentimental about it. I quite like the next adventure. Mm -hmm. um, and partly because we, 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 we have a, uh, a question we ask each other, not, uh, not every time, but most times, which was what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said. Mm -hmm. And it was a question that allowed us to talk about the stuff that was um, an undercurrent and risk destabilizing us too much. So we could bring up the half truths or the, the half sense things, or the, I, don't, I can't put a word to it yet, but there's something here. Mm -hmm. And that, that commitment to a, 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 a vital and repairable relationship through things like you know, what needs to be said that hasn't been said, just allowed us to adjust pretty quickly when I was backsliding. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, what needs to be said write it down yeah it's it's it is an invitation to say the unspoken things mm -hmm. um and it for me it gave me courage to be to be more honest than i would have otherwise been mm -hmm. and um so i guess you know in this current moment where there is so much uncertainty and where we have this notion of the great resignation you know so many people have really just said, you know, this thing I was sleepwalking my way into before all this stuff happened is not the thing I want to do anymore. Like, I don't, I don't, even if I could go back, I don't want to. Right. Um, and do you have guidance for people in, in that kind of moment? Because I think a lot of people are exhausted. They are burned out. They are feeling, you know, the weight of the world. They're very uncertain. And we know uncertainty yeah. can be something that causes you to freeze. Uh, do you have kind of guidance with this book be helpful? Do you think? Um, it's it is a it's a very big question, Rita, mm -hmm. um, because it, it's it so much of it depends on how you are resourced or mm -hmm. not in terms of what capacity you have to shape some of this stuff and. There's no doubt that uh, the idea of setting a worthy goal is easier if, you're, if you've got resource and not just money, but also social structures and support and all of that, that, that can make that easier. Um, I think it's a really powerful moment to say, what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? And what might I do differently? And, um, you know, for some people that can, mean creating a bit more of a, uh, a portfolio career where you're like, you know what, I can't get all my meaning from one thing, or I might not be able to get all my money or resource from one thing, but maybe there's a way of combining things to say, how do I build a life that gives me what I need in terms of both resource and meaning and community? Um, you know, it's, uh, this, this great resignation or the big quit, you know, is a place of 
freedom and excitement and possibilities, but also for lots of people, it's just anxiety and uncertainty and what, what can I do? Um, so I hope the book is helpful for some people in that situation. Um, you know, people who are in a place who want to be ambitious for themselves and for the world who want to have more impact in the work that they do um, mm -hmm. and are willing to kind of sit and wrestle with some of that stuff. For, for some people, this book is going to be helpful, I hope. Mm -hmm. I, I would think so. I would think so. And it's, I mean, it's really, it, it's very practical for those of you that don't have the book. It's full of, you know, worksheets and suggestions and checklists and the, you know, sort of constructive things you can fill out for yourself. So, uh, you know, I, I find for some people that structure is super helpful to have yeah. something to actually work through and feel you're making progress on. It's, it's kind of like, I get lots of comments around, it's like having your own coach or your own facilitator work, working you through this stuff. Right. And right. as you say, for some, some people love that. Some people are like that. I hate those books. And you're right. like, don't buy this book. So what's next for you? Well, I'm, I, I am trying to write more books. I'm trying to reimagine myself as a writer. And, you know, I know I'm already an author because I've, I've written books and I've got books out in the world, but I've never really thought of myself as a writer before. I mm -hmm. kind of have written around running businesses or doing other stuff. So I'm like, what, is it, what would it be if I was a writer? So the start of the year, five and a half months ago, I'm like, I'm going to write three books this year, Not like three first draft books. I know it's a reader's face is a classic, which is like, are you an idiot? And I'm like, no, I've got this, oh, three really good books and they're, they're small, but they're powerful. Anyway, so I'm halfway through my time. And so far I've written about 500 words of one book. So I'm like, I'm a little behind. I'm a little behind. Um, but uh, my first draft of this next book I'm writing is due uh, in six weeks time. So um, I, I've got a sense of what it's about. It's about how do you build, it's a little bit like the, the, the conversation we're having around Shannon, which is like what needs to be said that hasn't been said. It's a book about how do you build relationships with the people with whom you work that are more vital, more vivid and more repairable. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that well-known saying that people leave managers, they join organizations, but they leave managers. It's like, so don't be that manager. Let me give you some tools that will make it easier for you not to be that manager. Well, and it, it's this is a big issue. I mean, I forget the latest statistics, but it's something like 32% of people are not engaged at work. And yeah. this is just American statistics globally. I think it's like 20%. They're just checked out. Um, and it's it's that direct report. You know, it's yes, to some extent, it's peers as well, but it's mostly that that relationship with the yeah. person, you know, who's got a lot of power over you, how you spend your day. Well, I figure if I can help people find goals that light them up, find um, a manager that has a strong relationship with them, and then has coaching that both moves the relationship and the goals forward, I'm giving more people a better chance of thriving in their organization. Absolutely. That's great. So um, obviously our listeners can buy the book. That would be a good place to start. You've got a great website with all kinds of content on it. Um, is there any other place they should go to learn more? Well, yeah, the website is mbs.works for particularly the stuff around how to begin and the goals. And if you're into organizational change and training, then boxofcrowns.com is the website for that. Um, and then you can find me in all sorts of places. You might be interested in a TEDx talk that I gave called uh, How to Tame Your Advice Monster. I gave that uh, a couple of years ago. 
and uh, it's just talking through in a little more depth around what are the three advice monsters and how do you recognize them and how do you tame them? And Rita and I, I talk too much. So Rita and I ran out of time to talk about that. But if you're interested in that, check out the TEDx talk. <laughs> well, I love the idea of an advice monster and that it, it's often the least productive thing you can do in your personal conversation, which is a bit a bit counterintuitive. You know, you think you're there to be an expert and you're actually there to do something much richer, which is to get at the essence of the issues. And you don't get there by thrusting yourself in the middle of it, which I think is a very practical takeaway from, from the, the first couple of books. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time uh, to, to join us. Thank you all for listening and um, to be continued, I hope. Beautiful. Rita, it's lovely to see you again. Thanks for your time. You.